0: Two out of
1: three with Patrick Swayze. Yes, two out of three with Patrick Swayze. We got Bjorn Lomborg. Yes, we have Bjorn Lomborg today. Let me uh, uh, properly introduce our guest. He became internationally known for his best-selling book and controversial book, The Skeptical Environmentalist, in 2001. He's a former director of Danish Government's Environmental Assessment Institute, EAI, in Copenhagen. Lomborg agrees that global warming is real and man-made and will have a serious impact. Uh, but uh, uh, enumerates about uh, uh, other disagreements with scientific consensus. In 2009, Business Insider claimed that Lumberg is one of the 10 most respected global warming experts. In 2004, he was listed as Time's 100 most influential people He's got a master's degree in political science and a PhD in political science, which is kind of wild. I want to ask about that as well. Having said that, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Hey,
2: it's great to be here, Patrick. Thanks Thank for you. coming
1: out. Yes, obviously you were uh, off camera. You were telling us your travel schedule. You've been all over the place. But if you don't mind, Bjorn, you know, before we get started, take in a minute or two and share with the audience a little bit about your background, how you went from who you were then to all of a sudden data, statistics, climate change, global warming, and in who you are today.
2: Yes, and, and it's a weird story. Any, no, sorry, uh, but but you know, fundamentally, I'm uh, I'm like I think most sort of young people. I was worried about the environment. I was worried about a lot of things. Uh, I was a member of Greenpeace, not you know, not rub a rubber boat, but you know, worried enough. Uh, had the backpack, the badge, the poster on my wall, and you know, thought the world was coming to an end. Seriously, um, literally. Yeah, at what
1: yeah. at what age is this?
2: So, uh, yeah, uh, uh, early college. Okay, sort of, Got eighteen it. twenty. Um, so I have that poster. I don't know if you've ever seen it. You know, it's, a, it's supposedly an Indian saying where it says, only when they caught the last fish and cut down the last tree will they realize they can't eat gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, Can you pull that up. on there real quick? Guy. <laughs> Later on, of course, I realized that's actually a, a, it's a, it's a made-up quote from a movie in the 70s. Yes. Well, my, my poster didn't look like that, but yes, it's the same quote. Uh, you know, the, 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 the fundamental point here is that I thought, like certainly most of my friends, the world was in a really bad place and getting worse and worse. Then I, wrote, I read uh, uh, an interview with an American economist called Julian Simon in Wired magazine back in 1998. And he said, pretty much everything you know about the environment is wrong. Things are, in general, getting better. And I was like, no, that's just crap. But he said one thing that really annoyed me because by then I was actually teaching statistics in political science. Um, and I always told my students to go check the data. And he said exactly that. Go check the data. And so I figured, all right, that's a that's a challenge. I'm gonna prove him wrong. <laughs> of course he's wrong, but I'll we'll have fun. So I brought together some of my best students, and you know, we bought his book and we we're gonna go through it and meticulously show how he's wrong all kinds of places. Turns out that much of what he said was right. You know, if you think about it, it's kind of obvious. Most places in rich countries, the air has gotten much, much cleaner. And you know, in London, we have good data back from 1585. Uh, and the London air got worse and worse and worse over the last 400 years up to about 1890. And since 1890, it's gotten cleaner and cleaner and cleaner so that today, London air is cleaner than it's ever been since medieval times. You, you need to know this, and we don't. We don't often think about this, that mostly, partly because we're rich, partly because we decide to clean up.
1: London air is better today clean. than medieval times?
2: Yeah, and that, this is true pretty much probably not the same exact <laughs> dates for, for Florida, but Florida air is much, much better, and the U.S. air is much better than it was four, uh, four decades ago because we've cleaned it up. For a lot of different reasons, but mostly because we're rich and we can afford to do so. When you're poor, you want to get rich. When you're rich, you actually want to stop coughing. So this is not rocket science, but we don't know. And that's incredibly important. And it will become important as we talk about global warming. Because fundamentally, people think global warming, just like all the other threats, is the end of the world. It's not. It's a slight impediment on the world getting better. So global warming means the world gets better slightly slower. Now, that's a very different kind of worry than the world is going to end.
1: Is there any statistics of what age bracket fears global warming the most? You know, mm-hmm. like, is is there a, uh, you know, Gen Zs or Gen Ys or, you know, millennials or boomers or Gen Xs? Is, is there any statistics on who fears it the most? Gen so, Z is top of the list. But no, I'm so, asking, yeah. like, is there actually statistics? So
2: they... It used to be that uh, that young people worried more.
1: So um, global warming, age gap, younger Americans, yes. most worried, uh, 70%, 18 to 34, uh, 56%, 55 and older. How about the ones in between? Are they confused? Like, what about the <laughs> age? Uh, uh, can you go a little higher? I'm just curious to know what this... Okay, there it is, 15 to uh, 34 so. Less and less think global warming will pose a serious threat in your lifetime. Well, yeah, but
2: that's because when you're old. <laughs> you. <laughs> but you're, but you're you know what? this
1: It shows that people yes. fear it less yes. as they age than those like 55 and older. They don't even think about it, 29%. But the younger audience, 82% understanding global warming issues. Why is it that, it, you know... It's normally younger students, 18, 20, 22, that fear this the most.
3: Uh, I'll give you my perspective real quick. Uh, I grew up in L.A., and he immigrated to L.A., um, and I remember growing up with the smog in Los Angeles, and we were born within three years of each other, and you probably read about it, that the air in Los Angeles was horrible. The joke was, I don't don't trust air I can't touch. (laughs) But the smog was Mm -hmm. so bad, and you can see the pictures from Los Angeles through the 70s. They went to unleaded fuel, and... And other things that happen with power plants. Uh, San Onofre went online, which is an old nuclear power plant in Southern California. And so I have a perspective in my own lifetime that I have seen L.A.'s air get much better. I don't look at this as, oh, screw the grandkids. I'm, I'm out of here in 40 years, so, you know, I'm not worried about it. I don't look at it that way. I have perspective on Los Angeles, which was a horribly filthy city. And now you take a look.
1: Yeah. And again, the reason why I'm asking this question, because you'll hear stuff like, you know, Greta talk about in 12 years, we're all going to be dead. And how dare you, you know, an AOC gets up 12 years, if we don't you do this, my $30 job. trillion. Dollars, why does this resonate with kids more than it does to people who are older?
2: I, I think, in some sense, it's just because they live longer; they have more likelihood of, of experiencing the really bad impacts of, of climate change. But probably also because we're, um, you know, when you're young, certainly I had that experience. You just hear all these scary stories, and you think, "Oh my God, the world is going to end!" Uh, if you're a little older, you've heard a lot of other scary stories. I mean, if you think back to the first environment summit in the in the UN in 1972 in uh, Stockholm. Uh, the head of that, uh, environment, uh, conference told the world, we have just 10 years left in 1972. So, you know, we constantly hear this and, you know, there's always the next thing around that's going to destroy us all. And once you've heard a few of them, maybe you become a little more skeptical about the next one and you should look. There's a real there are real problems and certainly it was a real problem in, in Los Angeles with the uh, with the air pollution. But we fix these problems and remember we fix them by being smart. So you know the main thing that actually fixed the Los Angeles uh, air pollution was the innovation of the catalytic converter. Mm-hmm. It was the you know because most air pollution in Los Angeles is caused by cars. It was basically that every car got its own little uh, you know cleaning facility.
3: And unleaded Uh, fuel. You know, they're they're talking about now by 2035, a certain percent of cars that are sold in in California have to Mm -hmm. be electric. Well, there was a time where they said by a certain date – all cars have to be unleaded fuel, yes. but unleaded fuel in the catalytic converter—you're right—combined yeah. to make a so huge un- change.
2: Unleaded fuel was a fantastic idea, but it didn't actually uh, in- uh, increase the air pollution. It, it, but it's very, very polluting. Uh, but it, but it's not part of the air pollution. It sits on the ground and, and affects everything you uh, you eat and uh, you know, the vegetables that kind of thing. But yes, absolutely. So so you know, Catal-
1: it, So you so you were saying so the biggest difference. I just sent you if you can show the picture of L.A. before and L.A. now. You said the biggest difference was catalytic converters. The
2: catalytic converter. It's a a thing they invented in 1974, and it basically takes out a lot of the pollution from the exhaust uh, Mm. pipe. It cost a couple hundred dollars. So, you know, it's not free, but it's not a big deal. And we put it on. We enforced it. And now the air is much, much cleaner. And this also tells you how we fix most problems. We don't fix problems by telling everyone. I'm sorry. Could you know, imagine telling most Los Angeles, Los Angelinos? Is that the word? Yeah, yeah. you got uh, that yeah. <laughs> thing. Yeah. Telling. Uh, sorry, you can't drive. <laughs> you have to walk, yeah. run, or something. That's never going to work, right? But you can tell them put on this catalytic converter. And then we fix much of the problem. So instead of what we're also trying to do now today with global warming, telling everyone, I'm sorry, could you be a little poor, a little colder, a little warmer, a little more uncomfortable, eat a little less and have a little less of all the fun stuff, but then we'll try and fix global warming. That'll never work.
1: You know, yesterday, what we will had,
2: work is technology.
1: Yesterday, we had Charlie Kirk on, and one of the things we were talking about is the conversation came about DeSantis and Trump. And I asked the question, I said, so. If DeSantis goes against Trump, who win? He says, no, Trump's going to win. I said, if you're DeSantis, do you go in? He says, absolutely. Uh, He says, because you have to go in to learn how to win the fight. He says, you know, Reagan didn't win the first time. This person didn't win the first time. He's kind of going through the process, right? He made a very good point. So the first time you write a book called The Skeptical Environmentalist, 2001, you're coming out, you got some data, you're confident, But now you're a bullseye, you're a target, right? Hmm. And everybody wants to prove you wrong, which forces you to go and get better at your arguments. You make your arguments stronger. What areas at first, when you wrote your first book, where were some of the leaks where you're like, okay, These guys do have a good point. Let me go look at this a little bit further. Oh, okay, I didn't think about this one here. Oh, no, I am right in this part. Because I know the whole thing, when you went back and forth, Mm. they wanted to say that your book was an opinion piece, and then I don't know how many people wrote against 267 people appealed to say, I can't believe you're doing this. And then eventually, they let your book stay. You ended up essentially winning the fact that the book stayed. But what changed from the first time you wrote that book were some areas you knew you had to do even more research in? so <laughs>
2: it's a it's a difficult question because uh fundamentally I think I think I came in as a newbie uh, I wrote a so lot in, that, yes yeah. I I wrote a lot of stuff that I think actually held up really well uh but there was a lot of stuff I didn't know very well uh I think the big difference is that now I I get a lot more of the backside of of all those stories. I think most of the data that I told already back in 2001 was correct simply because I wasn't telling, you know, I I wasn't saying, hey, I found this. This was what the international organizations were telling us. You know, I've never disputed, you know, global warming. I I think the UN climate panel is the right one to take uh, uh, that conversation, but what I actually did was read them. Uh, you know, when, when you read most of these this stuff in the in the newspaper, like you just mentioned AOC telling us we only have 12 years left. Look, this is the public sort of PR version of the story. What is actually the background is politicians asked the UN Climate Panel, the IPC, what will it take to stay at below 1.5 degrees centigrade, which is you know this made-up target. Uh and you know it's basically incredibly difficult to do. So the UN came back and said, if you want to do this almost impossible task, you have to do almost impossible stuff. You have to change your entire economy, the entire global setup in 12 years. That's how the 12 years ended up. Mm -hmm. It's basically saying, if you want to do something impossible, you've got to do it in 12 years. Now, that's a technically true statement, but the UN climate panel never says you should do this. They're simply saying, if you, want, you know, it's a little bit like saying, what would it take to, uh, to stop all traffic deaths? You know, about 40,000 people dying in traffic every year in the U S what would it take to stop all of it? Well, one suggestion would be to set the speed limit at three miles an hour. <laughs> Nobody would die. But of course, there's some enforcement issues, and I think <laughs> maybe a lot of people would not feel particularly comfortable about that. But it's true to say if you want to get rid of 40,000 people dying every year on the road, one solution could be to set the speed limit three miles an hour. But it's not actually recommending that. Nobody would want that, and it doesn't take into account. We have other things that we like as well, like being able
0: to get to you know our family in, in time. Can I follow up on that? The, you know, these days, I think that there's such a craving from most people— for just universal truths. Like, what is actually the truth? Don't give me a narrative. Don't give me your opinion, whether it's with COVID, whether it's with inflation, whether it's, you know, is are we in a recession? Are we not? Like, everyone wants to push their narrative. I think what would be helpful is, what are the resounding universal truths that everyone can full-on agree upon? Like, the, mm. forget about your opinion, buddy. This is the truth of this matter when it comes to climate like you've been pretty clear yep. that climate change is real man some of it is man-made what is people on the left the right up down what are the most universal basic truths that everyone agrees upon right. from there I'm, I'm gonna give you first the thing everyone agrees on then
2: mm-hmm. what most people agree on and then maybe we'll get it hierarchy. yes amazing so, so everyone pretty much everyone agrees we're emitting co2 that's says main greenhouse gas, because we burn a lot of fossil fuel. CO2 wraps around the world, makes the world a little bit more uh, sort of holding back uh, infrared radiation, so it actually heats up the world a little bit. That's what everybody agrees on. That's the basic sort of greenhouse uh, effect or what we call global warming or maybe even climate change. So CO2, so check, not CO- good. We're putting out CO2, and that causes the world to warm up. Copy that. It's also universally accepted that if you change the world's temperature, that will have a cost. You know, look at, uh, look at Miami and look at Boston. Mm-hmm. They're both pretty you know, good cities to live in. Uh, they've certainly been adapted, you know, lots of air conditioning in Miami, lots of heating in mm-hmm. Boston. Both of these places would be off. If the temperature gets warmer or if it gets colder, because all of the infrastructure, all the buildings have been built to that particular temperature. If it gets warmer, you know, Miami will have to put in more air conditioning and Boston will have to put in more air conditioning. And likewise, if it gets colder, you'll need to have more heating, both of them. So it's fundamentally costly when the weather or the climate tracks off from what it used to be. That's the main reason why global warming is a problem. Global warming is a problem because we track off from what our infrastructure is adjusted to everywhere on the planet. It's not the end of the world. You know, A couple of degrees uh, uh, temperature change is not suddenly going to make Miami or anywhere else unlivable. It's just simply gonna pre- present somewhat of a problem. Now, everybody would agree with the first part of it, but now I'm tracking into what most climate economists try to focus on. So climatologists, all the natural scientists, they look at what will happen when you put in more CO2 and how much goes, does the temperature go up. But economists then try to say, what's the total impact of that? What are all the bats and ups uh, the positives of that remember as it gets warmer uh, we'll also be able to produce more food we'll have more growth days many places in the world because co2 is also fertilizer we'll also have more green stuff we'll probably be able to uh, uh, produce more overall when you add up all of this it's a negative that's why it's a problem but you need to add up all of it most economists will tell you that the impact of global warming over the century will be in the order of say 4% Four percent of GDP. So it means that by the end of the century, if we do nothing about climate, it'll feel like we're four percent le- less well off than we otherwise would have been. There's two so important- almost
0: like inflation for the
2: it's, world. It's it's like a, a couple one or two years of recession over the next eighty years, which is why most economists say it's a problem. It's not the end of the world. This is not 100%. Remember also at the same time, and this is a little hard to hold in your head, but the, the, the UN estimate that we'll be much richer by the end of the century. Just like you know, from 1900 to 2000, mm-hmm. the world got incredibly much richer. Uh, the UN in a standard scenario estimate that each person on the planet will be 450% as rich as he or she is today. That's an astounding and wonderful achievement. That, that means, you know, especially if the world's poor will be pulled out of poverty, lots of great things from that. Because of global warming, we will not be as rich. Instead of being 450% as rich as we are today, it'll feel like we're only 434% as rich. Yes, that's a problem. No, it's not the end of the world. Things will be much better, but slightly less much better. That's why I'm arguing, and most climate economists are arguing, this is not the end of the world. Actually, most other things that happen in the 21st century will probably be much more important, like, for instance, our... Pension problems, you know, most countries in the world, especially a rich world, are not saving enough for old, t- uh, for people when they get old, and all the other problems, infrastructure. How do we deal with the fact that you know the world is aging, so we have ever fewer uh, young people supporting ever more uh, old people? And there are lots of other challenges for the world. Those are probably going to be much bigger. This I just, I just learned 20.
0: that term, by the way. I've heard of climate scientists. <clears throat> Uh, this is new a new term climate economist. What's the difference between those two people? So the climate scientists
2: are the ones who've run the computer models. They're all natural scientists. They're, they'd be like physicists sort of thing. And they basically look at all the natural effects and try to estimate the natural uh, 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 variables to say, if you put an extra ton of CO2, how much warmer does it get? That's what they ask. The climate economists will say, all right, so temperature goes up by this. We take that from the climate economist, uh, sorry, from the climate scientist. How much will that impact our economy? How much worse is that going to make you? Mm.
0: Who's more important? Are they both obviously equally important? You need both. But unfortunately,
2: we've had very little conversation. So look, uh, uh, one of the climate economists, uh, his name is uh, William Nordhaus. He's a professor at Yale University. He's the only uh, climate economist to get the Nobel Prize in Mm. 2018. So these are important people. But when you talk to most of the climate conversation – it's all natural science. And that's wrong because you need to actually say how much is this going to affect us? Take one thing that's incredibly important for Florida, sea level rise. You know, obviously, you know, as temperatures rise, water, just like everything else, expands. And that means you get higher sea
0: levels. That's also absolutely mm-hmm. uncommon. I live in Miami. I see the sea level, yeah. the streets get flooded. It's insane. They've raised the roads significantly yeah. over yeah. the last few years. So We absolutely will have a problem with sea level rise. Now, the
2: question is, is this going to be unmanageable or not? And the simple simple answer is no. We know how to do that. And a good example is Holland. Holland basically has 40% of its area below sea level. And yet, most people live there fine. If you have ever flown into Amsterdam, uh, they're one of the few airports in the world, I'm sure, who on their website uh, proudly point out that they are the only major airport that was uh, formerly a site of a naval battle. Uh, But yeah, you fly in there, there's no no water. You don't have to worry about this. Mm -hmm. And they've fixed the whole thing. So the total cost of all that Holland has done over the last 50 years is about $10 billion. So... Yeah, it's not nothing, but it's not a big thing for a rich country over fifty years.
1: Here's here's a question for you. Like for me, <clears throat> the ability to uh, uh, sell something. You, you you'll see a lot of gaslighting. You'll see a lot of uh, uh, exaggerating. You know, why why use uh, this to ask for the amount of money that they ask? What was the amount they asked in Paris Accord? or even AOC's uh, oh, uh, proposal. I think AOC's was $30 trillion. Yeah, probably Paris, Accord, Paris Accord was around, what, $100 trillion? The The number is a big number.
2: They're, the, they're like, ridiculously yeah. large numbers. And yeah. But you
1: did a video, and you said the fact that the improvement, you know, it would only improve the temperature by, what, 0. 0.3 degrees? I think that that was the number that you said in in a, uh, in a an article with the Paris Accord, $100 trillion. If you're saying there's more efficient ways— To fix this, you'll see reports and they'll say, well, here's what we got capacity factor by energy source in 2020. You got nuclear options, geothermal, natural gas, hydropower, coal, wind, solar. What is the most efficient way for us to be able to catalytic converter? 200 bucks you were talking about, right? That's kind of what fixed LA. Yes. What are some of the things we individually could do? And what are some of the things the government can do? To help with this,
2: so I'm going to disappoint you right off the bat and say this is not a problem that individual can fix. Uh, w- w- you know, people love to talk about, oh, you should take your car a little less, you should eat a little so less. So, paper meat, straws are not
1: going to fix climate change. <laughs> no, no.
2: So it, it, these are all good things, and, Terrible. You know, damn, please, you know, feel free to do them, and they're yeah. probably good for other things. But don't believe that this is a question about us, you know, doing a little less, and then we've fixed it. The main issue here is. That there's about, you know, somewhere between four and six billion people out there, the non-rich people in this world, who want to be rich. That's China, India, Africa. And they want to get out of poverty. and, uh, you can't blame them. They will want to do that by producing much more by becoming rich, just like we are, and that will emit a lot more CO2 unless we have a different technology. To take over. And that gets back to the whole point of the catalytic converter. Instead of making this about us feeling guilty right now, and we got to cut in the next three years which will be fantastically costly, lead to a lot of uh, voters saying no. Uh, you know, that's, if you remember back in France in 2018, you had the yellow vest that were basically revolting because mm-hmm. they said, I don't want to pay more for my gas. And you will get these sorts of protests once people start seeing the incredible price hikes that those kinds of policies uh, will lead to. You will not be able to do it. And even if you do, you will only be able to do that for the rich countries, which is a small fraction of the total emissions. This is about finding a way that the world can both become richer and better off in so many other ways and also cut its emissions. That's not easy.
1: So people, you know, they, they – the. The people can then can do nothing about it on a day-to-day basis so keep driving your gas cars keep smoking <laughs> cigarettes matter of fact double down on cigarettes cigars <laughs> smoke out Wait, of-
2: Now you're slightly skewing my point but yes uh, look uh, this is not predominantly about what each one of us do this because, is because about- the only reason I
1: ask this question is because mm. you'll hear the argument I'm obviously being a little bit uh, sarcastic here but what I'm saying is it's the blame is on the people. You know, here's who it is. We caused this. This is because of us. And it is catastrophic. If we don't fix it, you know, it's going to be the end of the world. And what about you and other? Okay, so I'll do something about
2: it. And I think this is the main point. If you think this is the end of the world, and a lot of people have been led to believe that it's the end of the world. Certainly the media uh, uh, sort of narrative. uh, uh, A a recent OECD survey showed that all the rich countries, uh, about 60% of all people, now believe that global warming is likely or very likely to lead to the extinction of mankind. That's just, you know, that's crazy. That's not at all what the UN is telling us in its 4,000-page long report. This is not the story. It's the media uh, story. So if you think global warming is this meteor hurtling towards Mm Earth— That's all you should be concerned about. That's the AOC point. You know, if we have 12 years left, and I get why she thinks, I get why Greta Thunberg thinks, you know, you they've heard constantly and over again on the media, this is the end of the world. If that's true, this should be our only concern. That's absolutely correct. But it's not. That's not actually what global warming is. Global warming is a problem, not the end of the world, and it's one that we can fix very poorly right now but that we can fix fairly effectively over a longer term and that is through innovation. So again, you know, if we could come up with the equivalent of the catalytic converter for climate change,
1: we could fix Can this. you give us some more examples of catalytic converters? Like <laughs> yes. and I'm being serious, like what yep. are some things we've done that whether it's entrepreneurs, military, whether it's got co- whoever it is. Yes. What are some things we've done? So
2: if, if I had the full example, we'd already have solved it and I'd be a very rich man. So I'm going to give you examples, but they're not. Well, I want you to
1: be rich. Reggie Callowan said it. I want to be rich and I want you to be so, rich.
2: So, uh, uh, fourth generation nuclear, basically, prom- it's a new technology. So, we're third generation right now. Mm-hmm. It promises to be incredibly safe and incredibly cheap. Now, remember, that was what they said about the other three generations. So, you know, I'm a little skeptical, but let's see. there's a lot of good arguments. It seems reasonable. If that's true, we could basically have incredibly cheap electricity in the future that would be entirely CO2-free. How cool would that be? So that's one very obvious solution. Mm -hmm. Now, remember, electricity is only about 20% of our emissions. We can make it more, but it's still not a solution for most of the emissions, but it would be a fantastic start. So that's one. Craig Venter the guy who cracked the human genome back in 2000, mm-hmm. you may remember him. He's He has some crazy ideas, and some of them are f- fun crazy. So one of them is that he has this plan to uh, take genetically modified algae, put them out on the ocean surface, and let them grow. There they will suck up sunlight and CO2 and create oil. We could basically... Uh, grow our own Saudi Arabias out on the ocean surface. Then we'd harvest them. We could keep our entire fossil fuel infrastructure. And remember, because the oil has just been grown out on the ocean surface, you know, half a year ago, it would be CO2 neutral. Now, the the important point to remember is this does not work yet. It, it sort of works in a laboratory. But is this what not, you... <clears throat> yes, that's genetic engineering
1: are Exxon claim algae biofuel breakthrough. We're still not much closer to yes. commercialized algae biofuels. Yes.
2: But but so the, the, the point here, again, is I'm not advocating for this. I'm saying this is one of many, many ideas. Those are the kinds of things that could power humanity in the rest of the 21st century. So the point is not to come up and say, oh, this is the one that's going to be the winner. There are tons of these ideas out there. We just need one of them to work. Well, and so my, my point is we should be investing a lot more in those researchers because researchers are cheap. And imagine if we could come up with one. Imagine if this Craig Venter uh, uh, innovation actually could become true. Everyone would buy it, not just rich, well-meaning Americans, but also the Chinese, the Indians, and the Africans. So the whole point here is to say, this is just like we did with the catalytic converter. We're gonna solve this with technology not by moral exhortations, is that the word? You know, thou shall not.
0: By the way, did you ever see that speech that was given, uh, that guy Constantine Kissin? Uh, It was sort of where they do it, I think, in Oxford University, and he's a comedian, and he kind of basically went in on the, I sent this to you on Slack, Rocky, uh, he kind of went in on the... um, the woke climate change agenda. Are you familiar with this? I saw it. And yeah. he brilliantly just took it down one by one by one. It's on Slack. This guy, did you ever see this? Can we play that? It's and seven minutes. And you're open
4: to rational argument. A small minority, I accept. <laughs> because one of the tenets of wokeness is, of course, that your feelings matter more than the truth. But I believe in you. I believe there are those of you here who are woke who are open to rational arguments, So let me make one. We are told that your generation cares more than any other about one issue in particular, and that issue is climate change. We're told that many of you suffer from climate anxiety. You wish to save the planet. And for tonight, and tonight only, I will join you. I will join you in worshiping at the feet of St. Greta of climate change. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Let
4: us all accept right here, right now, that we are living through a climate emergency and our stocks of polar bears are running extremely low. I join you in this view. I truly do. Now, what are we to do about this huge problem facing humanity? What can we in Britain do? We can only do one thing. You know why? This country is responsible for 2% of global carbon emissions, which means that if Britain was to sink into the sea right now, it would make absolutely no difference to the issue of climate change. You know why? Because the future of the climate is going to be decided in Asia and in Latin America by poor people Mm -hmm. who couldn't give a shit about saving the planet.
0: And that, I don't know if we want to continue watching the video, but this goes to your point where you you talked about China, India, and Africa, and he he added Latin America. They are concerned of poverty. That's their main concern. So we have the luxury here in the United States or in the EU to things are so good we forget how good we have it here that we'll move on to other issues that are so magnified beyond our daily living that we all right we're going to saint greta of climate change right Hmm. whereas people struggling to put food on the table in poor countries or countries that have had famines or countries where wealth inequality is completely exacerbated their day-to-day living concerns are not the global climate and that's kind of what you were saying initially exactly. right yeah yeah and 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 look we got
2: to realize that we're not going to fix climate change again his point is absolutely right if all of the rich countries were to vanish tomorrow or basically stop emitting CO2. Just remember how terrible this would be. You would not be able to move. You'd not be able to keep cool down here in Miami or uh, warm in in Boston. Uh, uh, Half of all food would not be available. There'd be a lot of terrible consequences. But even if you did this, the net impact would be a reduction of about one degree Fahrenheit by the end of the century. We would be able to measure it but not very much and certainly not uh, before mid-century. It would have no impact. So we have no sense of how little we matter. What really matters is to convince all the people who you rightly point out have more important priorities like feeding their kids and making sure they don't die from easily curable infectious diseases and basically pull people out of poverty. We are not gonna convince most of the world to do this by being poor. We're only gonna convince people to do this if it actually makes them at least as rich and preferably even richer,
1: who makes who makes the money? Tom, with with uh, you know, uh, uh, follow the money concept. Who makes the money? Who wants this? Like who wants this hundred trillion dollar or thirty trillion? Who's going to benefit the most if AOC, Paris Accord, if they're successful?
3: Who gets this money? Okay, I may need you to help me here. Um, I have, I have heard and read more than once that both AOC and Kofi know that these immense quantities of money and the things are going to be thrown at is really a wealth distribution. It's really a tax and it's a wealth distribution that the ultimate differences that are in there are well known. And when I look at it, I, I say to myself, okay, Pat, where's the money going? And I've seen, and I haven't done this exhaustively, and this is running I need to back up. I see traditional energy companies getting billions of dollars in grants to go study, well, algae biofuel, which seems on the surface to be a very interesting and good thing. But I, I kind of see a lot of that happening. But what I don't see is, hey, you know what? One half of China is living in poverty we cannot even fathom because we, we don't see it. It's the, the visuals are suppressed. And they want electricity, a washer, dryer, and a car. And when you multiply that times billions of people, it's not 1%. It's 5, 6, 7%, correct? That's really yeah. what we're talking about is the modernization and mechanization of the large poor economies results in tremendous amounts of CO2 now, which is also the argument for gen three, gen four nuclear and electric cars that are recharged by the cleaner, more efficient nuclear so that you get out in front of the creation. But, but we're you uh, to, where have you, because this is what I've seen with the, with the money, the money's going in grants and money's going to think tanks. It actually doesn't end up on the table of, uh, to, to help make lives better on, on a, on a lower CO2 basis in Uganda. So, so
2: absolutely it doesn't go to Uganda, but I would actually argue that, that the grants are the kind of things that I'm also arguing for. The, that's the research, but that's a tiny fraction of where the money goes. The vast majority simply goes to buy stuff that we already know. In your is research, effect. you're talking
3: about like the consensus groups, like the ones no, 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 in no. Australia. I'm, I'm, the- no,
2: I'm I'm talking about that we, you know, we should absolutely be researching the fourth generation nuclear power plants or the uh, uh, the uh, 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 next generation biofuels, those kinds of things, because that's really, really cheap. That's basically buying researchers. They cost nothing. What we spend most of our money on is subsidizing existing solar panels, existing wind turbines, existing technology that we know is ineffective, but we just put up more of it. So, you know, uh, back in, in 2009 when we had the, uh, the one of these endless climate summits in Copenhagen, uh, uh, we have the world's biggest wind farm producer, Vestas, you may know. Uh, and so when everybody in the world descended, we were going to save the planet back then. Uh, and uh, on all metro stations, Vestas had put up posters and, uh, you know, uh, 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 advertising everywhere where it said, make a good climate deal. Now, they're they're probably nice people and they want to do that, but it's also very clear that they would make a Ton of money from such a good agreement, right? Because that agreement because they're going to go build
3: wind farms yes, out of it out of their product.
2: It mm-hmm. basically says use a lot of Vestas products. So yeah, b- follow b- the money is. There's going to be a well. It's it's not surprising that there's a lot of money uh, when when you distribute uh, you a know, hundred trillion dollars. <laughs> a lot of people are going to get rich, but but I think also. Politicians love this, for not predominantly because they uh, it's, it goes to any particular place, but because they get to distribute the money and because politicians live off of uh, uh, producing fear, if you will. They get to say, the world is ending, but if you vote for me, I can make it stop kind of thing. And that's an incredibly powerful metaphor.
1: I want to show you this. If you can go up to the an article that was written about new vaccines analysis that, that just came up of uh – uh, uh, you have the link. If you just go to VietTainment.com, it'll come up. Just go to vitamin.com, It's on the home. Uh, Rob, just go to VietTainment.com. It'll come up. Go to VietTainment. There you go. It's on the top right. Story right there. To your right. Perfect. Okay, so if you look at this, so new vaccine analysis reveals 300,000 excess U.S. debts, 147 billion dollars in damages. We are living in one of the most revealing uh, years of our lifetime, particularly when it comes on the glorious life-savings COVID-19 vaccine, but just how life-saving is it or was it? Time reveals all as research continuously points to the vaccines and effectiveness, especially how it was initially sold to Americans, recent data keeps exposing its uh, uh, fallacies and fatality. According to researchers, behind a new analysis by Human Projects, a wing of Portugal-based research from f- uh, finance uh, technologies and the U.S. COVID-19 vaccines injured 26.6 million people, disabled 1.36 million people, and cost 300,000 excess deaths. The economic cost of damages resulted in $147 billion in 2022 alone. Researchers behind vaccine damage projects said they ought to estimate the human costs, including that's caused or hast- hast- hastened by the vaccines, as well as the impact of the overall economy of each aspect of the vaccine damage. So if you go a little lower, this is from Edward Dowd. We had him on a couple weeks, uh, what is it, a couple months ago? Yeah, a ago. couple months ago, at Dowd. So he-, he shows the numbers at the top, estimated human costs, Estimated economic cost injuries eighty nine point nine billion disabilities fifty two point two billion excess death five point six billion. But go all the way to the bottom, all the way to the bottom, all the way to the bottom, all the way to the right there. Okay, right there on that tweet, right there. <laughs> Pfizer Moderna in twenty twenty two combines uh, COVID nineteen vaccine revenue U S of eleven and a half billion dollars. So for every one dollar they made, it cost the U S economy thirteen dollars. Quite the negative social uh, societal ROI. Largest crime scene in history. Multiply this across the globe numbers now you have to know that this research is coming from this organization you have to go test the research you have to go do your own uh, uh, due diligence on this to see where it's at but ed Dowd is also a data guy he's done very well for himself and he went from being a financial guy to wanting to study all the statistics wrote a book about it and boom everybody wants to talk about it and, and read about it but here's the question i ask this because we went down this rabbit hole with covid And we thought, oh, my God, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be great. A New York Post story came up that said, with the expert COVID uh, view blown up, green terror must be next. Okay, this just came up uh, a month ago. I'm sure you've seen the story. It is necessary to consider with the arguments of courageous skeptics like Bjorn Lomberg and others who have long documented the disconnects from reality in the climate change discourse. Despite the alarming predictions of climate uh, catastrophes, many of these forecasts have been consistently off the mark. For example, at the 2021 Glasgow UN Climate Summit, John Kerry claimed we have now only nine years left to stop global warming. That's pathetic to even Hmm. say something like that. This followed Prince, now King, Charles 2019 claimed that we had only 18 months left, and AOC claimed the same year that we had only 12 years left. At least she's more optimistic. These predictions conflict with the 2004 prediction with the British Greens that climate change would destroy all human civilization by 2020. Thank God we're still around. Additionally, the climate refugees prediction has been repeatedly overblown. In 2005, the United Nations Environment Program forecasted that 50 million climate refugees would be created by 2010, but this massive migration flow failed to materialize. The proposed solutions, such as banning gas stoves, mandating Teslas, and eating meal warms, are nonsensical and cater to the emotions of rich progressives rather than addressing the actual risk of climate change. So this is the part where the average person is sitting there who doesn't have all day, all night, doesn't get paid to do research. They have a family, they have a wife, they have kids, they have a husband, they have a job, they have responsibilities, they have things they want to do. They want to take care of their health. They want to increase their financial situation in a better place. But they're trying to reason and say, okay, Mr. Expert, Mrs. Expert, okay, government, you're here to help us. Every time you do, I'm a little bit worried and paranoid. Why was it that COVID that was supposed to be so beneficial for us, for us to go do all this stuff with vaccines now – everybody's turning around and not looking good, especially the experts. If that's the case, you ask for all this money. Why should we trust you with, you know, climate change? Mm -hmm. Maybe you're using the same, you know, method to get money out of us and use fear tactics to get us to fall for this crap. Do you see the credibility why the same people that don't trust the COVID argument now are having a hard time saying Is this the next thing?
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, So Patrick, um, uh, again, I'm the kind of guy that will read the UN climate panel report and actually mostly believe that the climate scientists are doing good work. But some of their... Uh, policy recommendations are not very good. I would probably do the same with the COVID. I'm, I'm not, I should just say I'm not a COVID expert whatsoever. But you know, I've, I know a lot of these people, you know, fundamentally, I, I probably don't, I would tend to not agree with the with the whole idea that vaccines were a terrible sort of scam. But It was very clear that we were being told in the COVID conversation that this is going to be the end of mankind. We need to do drastic things. And one of the drastic things we did, which a lot of people were already skeptical about when we did them, was to close our schools. We now know that that was a terribly bad idea in so many different ways. Uh, so the World Bank has uh, shown that you know it basically costs a lot of kids you know a year or more of their education around the world, and this makes kids everywhere poor. Uh, the World Bank estimate it will cost the world about one point four trillion dollars per year starting in two thousand and forty uh, because these kids will now be out in the employment market. And they will be less productive because they just lost Mm. a year of schooling around the world. This is terrible. And we knew back then what that tells you is we need to have a less biased conversation. We need to have a conversation where it's allowed to say, wait a minute, is that a good idea? And that was not allowed because we're so panicked in the COVID conversation. And likewise, we seem to be so panicked in the climate conversation that we often don't ask the same questions. So I absolutely agree with you. We need to ask these questions. And I think a lot of experts seems to just jump on this one solution. Now, the solution, no matter what the problem is, the solution is always solar panels and wind turbines, no matter what you ask. And that's probably not correct. It's a little part of the solution, but it's not a very large part of it.
3: Can I, can I challenge something you said yeah, uh, respectfully? Please. You just said let's have you can a can le- also do it un, unrespectfully. Oh, no, damn. <laughs> well, within arm's reach of you, I'll do it respectfully. Okay. Um, <laughs> y- you say let's have a less biased you know, discussion. How do you do that when so many of these scientific things inevitably become political, and political has policy? And policy has usually got two sides of the aisle— regardless of the, the, the country you're in. Because in, in politics, I think we can agree, boogeymen get created. Each side creates the boogeyman, and then they can control the outcome, which leads to policies and benefactors. In the case of COVID, COVID was a boogeyman. The control was masking and civic controls. Policies got put in place for education. The benefactor, now we turned out, billions and billions of dollars went to pharmaceutical companies and others. That's always where it is. How do you have a less biased discussion on this? This is my question for you and my challenge to you, because you yourself have twice been part of a good... Yeah, good, not good natured, but good logical attempts to create like the Copenhagen. St- uh, consensus, the yeah. Australian consensus, and both of those failed. How do we have a, a less biased conversation yeah. on this?
2: I should just say, Copenhagen consensus hasn't actually failed yet, at least. No, but, no, no. Yeah, should I'll, I say? Get, okay, yeah, so I'll should I say that to, yes. they
3: didn't come to consensus? There was an awful no, okay, lot of shouting. Yes.
2: Oh God, yes. So anyway, you're absolutely right. Look, I may be a little um, uh, uh, Pollyannic? N- yeah, well, or naive, or 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 hopeful. Uh, I tend to believe that when you work with people who disagree with you a lot. It's worthwhile to be polite, and it's worthwhile to try to sort of, you know, uh, engage them in in uh, in polite conversation, because it also makes all the people who listen in much more likely to say, oh, maybe he has an argument, and and so I I agree with you that that it is hard to get people, especially you know, sort of in the very religious uh, uh, environmental movement, to get them to move. But I think, and and that's back to you, Patrick, your point of saying, you know. M- most, most people have kids to pick up from school. You know, they have other and more important things to do. And, 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 and so in some sense, it's about convincing them that there is a problem, for instance, with climate change. But it's not as big as it's been promoted. It's not the end of the world. It's a problem. And many of the solutions are actually quite expensive and will deliver quite little. And having that conversation and having it respectfully, I think, can help make it more likely that many people are going to say, all right. I actually, I, I think that that makes some sense. Maybe we should start looking more for where can we get the biggest bang for our buck? What can we actually do? And that, of course, goes back to the whole idea of saying this is all about research. This is about making sure that we find these innovations that will make the world able to, to do this at an affordable cost.
3: Right, because you go back to Al Gore. He created the Boogeyman and Convenient Truth, mm. and you will jump to Pat and Less than ten seconds here, but we just read here that the Great Barrier Reef the pictures he showed was a natural life cycle happening on one side and there was actually a monstrous bloom simultaneously having on the on the other side and now the Great Barrier Reef is actually bigger so what what you know Gore would be accused of, not accused of but proven rather selective imagery and editing in building that. And then the polar bears have come back and everything. So people go, oh, well, you said this about COVID. You said this about inconvenient truth. And you were wrong and you were wrong and you were wrong. Yeah. he won an no. Oscar for that. Correct, yeah. and now we look back. Two thousand and six won an Oscar for that. Well,
1: let's just say no Oscar opinion. Is we can factually possibly say.
2: not the best scientific indicator. Either. Mm-hmm. But the point but, yeah. is, but to yeah. you,
1: yeah. you said we understand that. I stopped yeah. watching the Oscars a long time ago. But the, I mean, this year the movie that won, or do Anyways, I don't even want to get into it. It's very weird what things they do there. Mm-hmm. But you know, to the average person, being an Oscar award-winning documentary yeah. means you kind of know what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, the whole film created media, critic, collective. Rating Rotten Tomatoes was 51% and 61% for Metacritic. If you can go to the article you were just showing a minute prior to this, uh, Rob, which you had on, uh, you had it uh, right there. It says, don't forget the helpless uh, critters. Uh, greens love to hype up. Remember the Vanishing Polar Bear, Keystone's Algoers, Moral Panic, Masterpiece, and Inconvenient Truth. Turns out their numbers are up. From two and a half to five times since the 60s, the allegedly dying coral of the Great Barrier Reef now holds more than more coral than any time since record keeping began. Yeah, this is where they lose credibility. Though. Yes, and and they should
2: uh, because they're not telling us the full story. Now remember, again, the polar bears and I've been pointing this out for quite a while. Uh, we have more polar bears than we've had since the 1960s. Uh, we have much more. And this is mostly not anything to do with climate change, but because we stopped shooting polar bears. You know, we actually enacted a a global (laughs) treaty back in uh, 1976, where we dramatically reduced the number of polar bears we shoot, which has led happily to the fact that we now have many, many more polar bears. And again, one of the points I try to uh, emphasize is if you actually cared about polar bears, and if you wanted to protect them even more, shouldn't we be a little concerned about the fact that we – This year, and every year, we shoot about 700 polar bears out of the 26,500 polar bears there are. If you want to do something to help polar bears instead of, you know, not driving tomorrow, maybe you should (laughs) enact not shooting 700 polar bears. Again, this is not rocket science. And if we can stop having this very, very... Polarized conversation, we can actually get somewhere with you know smart, simple policies.
1: It's interesting here what you're talking about. The agreement on the conservation of polar bears came into effect in uh, May 26th of uh, 1974 in an effort to protect the species through a coordinated approach by the five polar bear range states: U- uh, Soviet, what is it? Russia, Norway, Greenland, Denmark, and U.S. and Canada. Seven hundred a year, twenty six thousand and now uh, uh, now it's what? what no
2: sorry we used to uh, uh, shoot about 15 14 1500 and then it went down to 700, 700. guys and remember 700 is is mostly in canada because there uh, it's inuit that are allowed to catch them so it's both caught by inuit it's also uh, sold as a trophy uh, hunting and a way to bring in uh, money to the uh, local community